Brands on Brands. Hey, this is Joe Sanok from ThursdayIsTheNewFriday.com. If you want to make the four-day work week a reality, to have more productivity, creativity, and to change society, you're going to want to listen to today's episode of Brands on Brands with my good friend, Brandon Berkmeyer. In a world where content is king and your reputation is your brand, how do you build a brand that matters? Welcome to Brands on Brands, a home for those that think different and push their boundaries. This is where branding that matters lives. Now, here is your host, Brandon Berkmeyer. Hey, 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 what's up? Welcome to Brands on Brands. I'm Brandon Berkmeyer, your personal branding coach, and I believe that building a brand that matters today is the only way for a person to thrive tomorrow. Thanks for tuning into this show today. It's another interview show. We're getting into it with my buddy, Joe Sanok, who just released a new book in October called Thursday is the New Friday. Excited to share what it's all about with you guys. It is essentially the idea that, you know, how to work fewer hours, make more money and spend time doing what you want. It examines the four day work week and how that boosts creativity and productivity. And Joe has been around. I met him at our conference for PodFest. Uh, I was a speaker there. And when we were talking, I was like, man, this guy really understands that work-life balance and really how to get the most of your week. And of course, like he's been doing this forever. He had his own podcast that is one of the top 50 podcasts worldwide with over 100,000 downloads each month. Uh, His book is now doing amazing. It's properly published uh, by HarperCollins. And you guys can cop that right now. But he's obviously been featured. He's been around for a long time. He's been featured in Forbes, uh, Good Magazine, Smart Passive Income Podcast. And he also hosts the Practice of the Practice Podcast, which if you are someone who's out there who has your own practice, you can get out there and learn from him in that as well. But this is his newest thing. And in our conversation today, really, we dove into things like, what is it that sets you apart? And when you were starting your coaching journey, how did you find your voice? How did you get out there and break through? And when you put your first offers out, what did you struggle with? And how did you overcome those things? And when you were building this book and you had these ideas, like what made you come up with this idea of a four day week and why four days and not three days? Uh, We get into all that. And it was super insightful, super useful for me. And I hope also for you guys. So check it out. My interview with Joe Sanak. Here we go. Brands on brands. All right, let's get going. I'm so excited to welcome our guest today, Joe Sanak to the show. Joe, thanks first and foremost for being here. I appreciate you, man. Oh man. I'm so excited to hang out with you. And the reason I'm excited that we get to get together besides that we've met in person, which is always nice. It's not just a virtual thing uh, is what we get to talk about today, which is a little bit of creativity, a little bit of productivity. And as always, we'll dive into some of the personal branding and reputation stuff as well. But I'd like to start with this concept that you've coined. You've written a book about it. It's called Thursday is the new Friday. I'm going to be honest. It seems like a no brainer, right? Like let's all take Friday off. (laughs) Why not? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We all, we all want to work less, but really what is your big idea and why does that matter? 
Yeah. Well, I think that the, the big idea, it's it's me joining a long history and collection of people um, that have been pushing for the three-day weekend, for the four-day work week. You know, when we look back and really understand where did we get the 40-hour work week, uh, it's less than 100 years old. Henry Ford started it in 1926 to sell more cars. And it took off because at that time, people were working 10 to 14 hours a day, six or seven days a week. So it was a no-brainer then to move into the 40-hour work week. But his belief was that if people had a weekend, then they would buy a car because they weren't going to buy a car to get to work faster, but they would if they had a weekend. And so he sold a ton of cars as a result of it. And when I think about, okay, it's less than 100 years old, it was completely made up by this random power broker of the early 1900s. For me, why this matters is because if we look at our generation as the post-pandemic generation, we have huge challenges ahead of us. Uh, you know, we look at the next 20 to 50 years, we've got global warming, future pandemics, we have all sorts of civil unrest. Um, who knows what else will come our way? Do we think that the 2019 version of humanity was the best that we can do pre-pandemic or can we do better? We have an opening right now for a handful of years to say, how do we want to reinvent society and how do we help ourselves to be the most creative, the most productive to address these future challenges? Uh, so when I think about why the four-day work week, because we need creative people, we need productive people that can really address the challenges that are coming towards our generation. So what made you start thinking about that? Because, you know, I mean, maybe you were reading the newspapers, which every day have doom and gloom in them. And you were like, yeah, there's so many things we need to accomplish. How are we going to get there? You know, or whatever it might be. But like, how did you like, where did this idea come from? Is this something that's been, it started off as something else and it, it modified over time? How did you get to this idea that, you know, this is what we need to be having a conversation about? Yeah, it's interesting how when you start to formulate ideas, you try to figure out, is this kind of the next trajectory for myself or is it more of a return home? And for me, this is definitely a return home. I remember my freshman orientation. So I'm a high schooler about to graduate for, you know, headed off to college. I go to this freshman orientation and it's like a weekend away for the first time ever as, you know, a young adult. And I'm sitting with this academic advisor in a small group of probably five or six different people. She said, okay, we're going to make your schedule for the fall. And I raised my hand right away and I, I said, well, do I have to take classes on Friday? She's like, no, this is college. Do whatever you want. So throughout all of undergraduate and graduate school, I never had a Friday class except for one semester when there was that one mandatory class that I took at 8 a.m. on a Friday. And so it was something that I lived throughout college. And then when I had my first job, there wasn't a lot to negotiate on in regards to the financial side. They had a pretty set budget. But I said, can I just work a four-day work week? I've been doing this throughout all of college. Uh, I know that I can do really good work and be really effective. And they gave it to me. And so as I moved into my career, like most people, I just started you know, following the 40-hour work week and eventually over time kind of lost that four-day work week. But then in 2015, when I left my full-time job to do my private practice and to do my consulting full-time, I went back to that four-day work week to just test it out as an experiment. And I actually got more done. I made more money in working that four-day work week than I had in a five-day work week. I mean, that's interesting. And I mean, being more productive, I understand, you know, that's, that's a, not a new concept, why do you think people struggle with implementing this kind of practice into their lives? Yeah. The average person thinks that the more they work, the more they're going to get done. Unfortunately, the research just doesn't support that. There's a diminishing return at a certain point. Uh, there's a recent study in Iceland that looked at 2,500 people working in a four-day work week. Uh, it was a multi-year study, probably the most famous study to date on the four-day work week. And it was across disciplines. It wasn't just teachers. It wasn't just, you know, 
lawn care workers. It was across multiple disciplines. And they found that their productivity was higher than the 40 hour work week, um, that they were happier, they were healthier, you know, that they're better able to manage their lives. And so when you look at that, okay, 32 hours is more productive than 40. That means those last eight hours were actually just a hobby. They, they were a waste of time. It was like climbing a hill and then the sand is moving down. And instead of getting off of that hill and staying at the top, you just let the sand pull you back down. Like, why would we do that? If we know that the research is pointing that 32 hours uh, or a four-day work week is more effective than a 40-hour work week, why would we spend that extra time at work? Uh, instead of investing in our communities, investing in our children, um, doing fun things, and having a higher economic return for all of that. You know, I'm going to get a little controversial with you here, but buddy, do it. I know, I know you Bring can the handle, noise. I know you can handle it. You know, on one side, a very popular man who a lot of you have heard of, Mr. Tim Ferriss, says we need four hours. And you're saying 32. I appreciate that it's better than 40. But I mean, should we be meeting at the middle of 18? Like, what's the right number here? Why 32 and not four? No, I, I think that question of like, how is this different from the four hour work week? I think Tim did really good work when that book came out in regards to just showing the possibilities. And, and it, that book was aimed definitely at the individual entrepreneur, uh, the people that people had almost complete autonomy over themselves um, to think that a corporation is going to switch to a four hour work week. He, that's not who he was talking to. With my book, I would say that this is more for general society. What is the next step in our own evolution? Sure, Henry Ford gave us the 40-hour work week. That was appropriate in 1926. That was a huge step forward for humanity, but we've outgrown that. Uh, we've already let go of Fridays. I mean, that's when we have team building activities at work, when people bring in cupcakes to celebrate a baby, casual Fridays. We see that Friday has been a half work day for a long time. So people already aren't working those extra eight hours. It may not be all on Friday, but, you know, they're spending extra time at the water cooler on Wednesday, and then they're in a meeting that could have been 15 minutes, but it's, you know, an hour and a half. And so when you condense that time, we see Parkinson's law really live out where the time that we give to something, it, the work expands to that time. And so when we look at, okay, should we meet in the middle? I hope that in 50 or 100 years, someone says, man, Joe Sanok and all those four-day workweek people, that was great for them, but we have outgrown that. We are different than that. I'm happy if that happens. That's the step away from the industrialists because the industrialists taught us, here's the one way to do it. Everyone's a machine. Everyone's part of an assembly line. You do it this way or you're out. Everything's prescriptive. It's five steps. It's seven steps. That's the old way of thinking. The new way of thinking is evolutionary of saying, what's the next step for my business? What's the step for me individually? What's the step for humanity? And we're going to outgrow it. And that's not bad. It's not bad if in five or 10 years, someone says the way Joe thought five or 10 years ago is now already outdated. Good. We're evolving, we're growing, we're getting better. You know, I like that. I just have so many visions of the matrix, like like people are batteries and we are in this system that is being used for other people's gain. And anything that gets us a little bit out of that and puts us back into our own, lives, own lives, I love that. You know, having to think about if I had eight more hours back and I actually thought about what would I do with this eight hours? If I had to make this useful, fulfilling, productive time, what would I do with it? I think that's an interesting perspective. What do you think people should do with newly found time? How do you think they should approach that? I think initially it's really difficult for most people because they've overvalued work and they've undervalued their life. Um, and so there's 
a huge awkwardness where they're realizing my tendency is to just go back to working. The kids are in bed. Oh, I should just knock out, you know, 10 or 15 emails. That's going to reduce my stress for the next day because then I don't have those emails. But when does that end? Because then the next day you've got, you know, 30 emails in the morning and it actually didn't reduce your stress and, and you're not giving yourself that permission to step back. So first for most people, it's really recognizing how much they've overvalued work, how much ego they've put into that um, and how they've defined themselves by what they produce rather than just who they are as people. Uh, then I, I think there's often a time when people get excited about exploring new things. And for most entrepreneurs, most business folks, scheduling in things that are non-work works better than if they just say, okay, I'm taking Friday off and who knows I'm going to sit around. So for example, last Friday, I went and did one of those sensory deprivation floats. It's a new sensory deprivation place here in town. I had done them before, but never locally and wanted to support them. So got it in my calendar, prepaid it. I'm not going to no show on myself for that because it's in my schedule and I've already paid for it. Whereas if people say, I, I don't know, maybe I'll go hiking, maybe I'll go out for breakfast with a friend, but it doesn't land in their calendar. They're probably not going to do it. Uh, and then the switch happens when people realize how, when they slow down, they actually are killing it more during that work week. They're focusing on the best use of their time instead of just across the board, having all time being viewed as the same. So then it becomes, I have to take Fridays off or I have to take Wednesday afternoons off or wherever you end up working less. That feels more normal for me to have a three-day weekend than to just burn the candle at both ends. So once that happens, that's when you start to really realize the power of the brain to be able to really get to the next level through slowing down. Yeah. What's, I mean, so many ideas come to my mind. I'm like, what would I prioritize personally is what I start imagining, you know? And like, it might not even be just like more family time because the kids are at school. I mean, it might be that, okay, this is like my people day. This is, or my people and new experiences day where I'm like, I'm out, I'm reaching out to people that I have forgotten to, to reach out to that have been on my list to talk to. Uh, that further my, you know, what I feel fulfilled in, in general, or that grows my, my experience, which also makes me feel fulfilled. I mean, maybe everyone's got their own list out there, which is, you know, it's interesting to even start to think like that, like what's on my list of priorities that I don't normally think about. Yeah. And that's that experimental model of saying, okay, I'm this week, I'm going to try to go for a walk every day or two or three walks on Friday with different friends. And do I then feel better? Do I feel exhausted? Do I feel drained, maybe I need to have some alone time uh, before I jump into family time on the weekend. And so instead of saying, here's the one size for everybody, it's saying we're moving from a prescription model to a menu model. We're saying, you know, I'm going to try this, this hiking thing for a little bit. I'm going to try a sensory deprivation chamber. I'm going to try reading. I'm going to try taking an improv class. I'm going to try all these things to see, do they give me life? Do they make me enjoy things uh, and help me bounce back? Because uh, the way most people think is they have their whole week where they get burned out. And then they recover. And that weekend is a reaction to the previous week. And the flip we want to do is where we then say, instead of a reaction to the previous week, we want it to be a preparation for the next week where the slowing down is primary. And we say, how do we best slow down? How do we just slow down so hardcore that on Monday morning, we're just like chomping at the bit to just go kill it instead of, wow, that was a draining weekend. And now I'm drained going into the work week and adulting's hard and blah, blah, blah. No, let, let's flip the script and actually say, this weekend needs to slow down. We need to allow ourselves to bounce back in a way that really preps us for the coming week. I like this. And I think people like, I probably like, let me, let's try to get this idea out there to, to sell more people on it. I probably didn't need to sell people on it. They probably would have just been like, yeah, sign me up. But getting there, I imagine is where you need some, some tactics, some approaches, some skills. 
And they can go read the book to get some of these. But if they're going to just want to take the first few steps to head towards this, where do they start? Like finding ways to free up that day. Yeah. So very, very basic is looking at the coming weekend, whether or not you have it as a one day, two day, three day weekend, doesn't matter. You want to add one thing and remove one thing. We're going to add one thing and remove one thing. So super micro step where you're looking and saying, what are some things that I could add into this weekend that have the potential to give me more life? So maybe you have a book that's been on your nightstand and it's not a business book. It's just a book that a friend of yours recommended and said, this is a fun book to read. And you haven't given yourself permission to read that book. Maybe it's, hey, I'm going to talk to my partner and my kids and say, on Saturday morning from 10 to 11, I'm going to get some green tea and I'm going to go read this book for an hour. Do not disturb me unless you are bleeding. It could be something like that. Um, it could be you have a friend that you haven't gone for a hike with. It could be that um, you need some sort of alone time or maybe family time. But finding those things that you can experiment with to add to your schedule to say, well, did this brighten up my weekend a little bit more? You know, if we keep, you know, adding 5%, 10% to each weekend, over time, we're going to figure out these are the handful of things that really help my weekend to be better. And then we want to remove one thing from the coming weekend. So maybe you have a coffee date scheduled with a friend. And every time that you hang out with this person, you leave feeling like trash. They're just like a toxic friend. We are too old for toxic friends. Uh, and so maybe you need to cancel that. Um, maybe you have some lawn care, some, some leaves, some snow, some whatever that you just dread doing. Hire the neighbor kid this weekend to just help out with that. Or maybe it's you know groceries. You're sick of spending half of Saturday going and getting groceries. Maybe have them delivered and spend the 30 extra dollars for that person to be employed and you'll know, get a good tip so that you can just have that break from going and getting groceries. So when you do these things, you start to figure out what works for you and what doesn't. So maybe you realize that the lawn care was actually a great mindfulness activity for you and you actually really enjoyed it. And you, you missed doing that when you hired that out to the neighbor kid. Okay, that's not something you're gonna remove. You're getting smarter about what your weekend needs. And over time, just like artificial intelligence, you're better able to say this, this weekend, I'm gonna need to do a handful of things to really make it feel good. And then sure, I'll do the adulting stuff. I'll do the laundry, I'll do the dishes, but here's the things I'm gonna prioritize first. I mean, you just made me think of five more things that I just don't want to do anymore. And I already had a list. I'm like, once I hit this age, like I no longer help people move. I no longer, <laughs> you know, sleep on people's couches or pick people up from the airport. There's just things I don't want to do anymore right. uh, that I'm just not interested in. Um, but now I'm like, yeah, there's a lot more things I want to add to that list. If I'm conscious about it, uh, I can achieve that. So you've had, you know, there are a few ways for me to approach this. I'm trying to think about the best way. If you had, you know, you've been out there implementing this with a few people already. I'm kind of curious. I have two sides. I'm like, what helped them make it work? But really, I want to know like what you saw were some of the resistances in, in people that you were trying to help them with on this. Like any stories that really shine for you when taking through people on this journey? Yeah, I think that the biggest resistance I would say for most entrepreneurial and you know personal branding types is the idea that their business is their baby. I think that's such toxic language. I have two daughters, they're seven and 10. I'm never gonna like leave them in an alley, but there's products that you need to kill. There's arms of your business that you need to murder. Uh, and, and for you to equate your business with a baby is super unhealthy. Like that, that's too much ego in your business. And so to even just say, your business is here to help fuel the lifestyle you want, to hopefully do some good in the world, to help serve people. And you're allowed to say, 
this is where that business ends and my life begins. And so the handoff, when we're talking about whether it's outsourcing or eliminating things or using automations is a lot harder when you have this toxic relationship with your business or your brand, because when you're thinking of it like a baby, you're not going to murder it. But if you think of it as a tool, we upgrade our tools all the time. We upgrade our upgrade our operating systems. Your business needs to upgrade in certain ways and also have eliminations in other areas. So I say that's one mindset. I think there's also the, well, everyone else doesn't do it that way. And so, you know, a lot of my audience are counselors, coaches, uh, people that have kind of small businesses. And so they'll say, well, everyone else in my community works 30 clinical sessions a week. I can't, you know, raise my rates and leave insurances and do these things. Uh, everyone takes insurance in my community. That may be true. You may live in a rural community where everyone is on insurance, or it may also just be the way that you view the world. Um, because when you actually look at how many clients you need, if you need 30 clients, you know, at $80 an hour, if you were charging $200 an hour, you need a lot fewer clients. And so you don't need to have that many clients anymore. So even just thinking about, are the assumptions that I have about my industry, about my ideal client, about the way things operate, are they coming from data I've collected and ways that I think, or are they just inherited from maybe the culture or the business that, I, that I've been a part of? So once we undo some of those things, we can start to really start with well, what's, what's the ideal schedule that, that you want to set up and, and what's in the way of that? Frequently, people have made commitments to things that have more been handed to them than maybe are real. So it could be specific meetings that meet every Friday and you've never challenged well, do I need to have this meeting on a Friday? Do we all need to do this on Friday? Could we meet every other Friday? Uh, could we meet quarterly on a Friday? And then maybe just do some email updates to be able to design your schedule in the way that you want. And then lastly, to really drop the ball, allow yourself to drop the ball on things. When you give yourself less time, what's going to happen is you're going to work on the very best use of your time. So if you typically have 20 major tasks in a week over five days, maybe you can only get to 15 or 16 of those when you give yourself four days. Those last four or five tasks, what does that tell you if you're dropping the ball? You're not going to naturally work on you know, your worst 15 tasks. You're going to work on the best 15 tasks. And so that's showing you very naturally what you can outsource or eliminate or remove from your schedule. So to your question about uh, an example, this guy, Dr. Jeremy Sharp, he's a psychologist uh, out in Fort Collins, Colorado. He was at Slowdown School, which is an event that we host in the summer where we go hiking and get massages on the beach. And then we work on their businesses. Well, that sounds nice. <laughs> it's amazing. We play spike ball and skip stones and yeah. day drink. It, it's great. He had such a busy schedule and we reworked his schedule. We looked at his podcast that he had just started, looked at just a few numbers that if they tweaked, he could take easily an extra day off. And I remember him calling his wife, Carrie, and you know, I wasn't right next to him, but you know, we were on this outside deck and I, I heard him crying. Like, and I talked to him afterwards and they realized, oh my gosh, this crazy ongoing sprint of adulthood, it's over. Like, I don't have to do it this way. And, and to just witness those moments when people realize this thing that I thought was unmovable and unshakable, actually, there's a lot of other creative ways that we can address that and not affect the bottom line and actually probably increase the bottom line. It's just a magical thing to see when people make that switch. Well, yeah. And I think that there's, there's this idea of independence out there that you are kind of paving your own path. And especially if you're a coach or you're an entrepreneur out there, like you've started to already see the the light on that, though you may have taken the dark path and overwhelmed yourself. But if you already have the power to do it, sure. Like now there's ways to get there. If you're in corporate or you in, you know, where someone else is in charge of your 40 hours, uh, you might be a kind of harder task to get there. But 
uh, other than having the conversation and seeing if they're flexible, I think it at least shines a light on the idea that maybe we should be rethinking what the next 20 years is after you've spent 20, 30, 40 years in, in, a, in some kind of career. Is that the next 20 years as well? What does that look like? Because I know a lot of people that were like me that were heading towards 40 were like, maybe I, I should start testing different waters and experimenting and exploring whether that means working for yourself or not, which it ended up being for me, really, because then I know that I'm in charge of my success and that I get to decide how I spend my time. But also if I have food coming the next week, like am I fired or not fired is up to me. And all those freedoms come with, you know, really thinking about what you want your future to look like. Yeah. And I think that people that are in that corporate world often underestimate the power they have, especially right now, retaining talent with, with my corporate clients is one, if not the top conversation people are having right now. How do they retain top talent and how do they attract new talent? Because everyone's hiring right now and not able to get the people that they want. And so when those companies switch over to a four-day work week, we see that top talent wants to go there. I mean, looking at Shopify, uh, who's switching over to a four-day work week and testing that out. Um, also Kickstarter, uh, a number of countries are testing it out. Um, we're seeing that that top talent right now is going to those places that has more work flexibility. And to even just have those conversations, if you are in a typical corporate job with your supervisor to determine do you work for an industrialist? The top key performance indicator they have for you is butts in the chair for 40 hours. Is that someone you want to work for, especially right now when the, the power really is in the employee's hands in regards to being able to negotiate, find a new job, switch jobs? Right now, the employer is in a very tough spot. Um, and so to be able to have those conversations and to be able to say, could we test a four-day work week? Could we test a 32-hour work week? walk through the particular process that I teach and how corporations can do that. The companies that do that are actually finding surprising results. Yeah, I can imagine. And I remember for me, like I had a period in my life where I was kind of testing the waters and I went into the new job and I said, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. Like right now I can only work three days a week. And they said, well, we need this many hours. And we kind of figured that out. I was like, well, I can work this many hours in those three days, but you going into that discussion saying, this is what I bring to the table. If I'm the right person for you, here's some things that I'm looking for. Uh, when it's the right fit, it might work. So you might have an opportunity at that negotiation stage. If you just started a new job, it might be a little difficult. But if you've built some good faith and goodwill over a couple of years, uh, just like a lot of us, once we have kids for the first time, suddenly they're like a little more flexible uh, with you leaving a little earlier, whatever it might be. So I think that it's definitely an opportunity to explore. Now, I do want to kind of pivot a little bit here and talk about kind of your journey and getting there for yourself. I mean, you had a, a, you were working for yourself for a lot of years, you know, in your own practice, but at some point you also had to figure out like your pivot and kind of navigating that. What was that like for you? Yeah. So when I was, so it would have been 2009, uh, I was working at a community college, had a counseling practice on the side, really to pay off student loan debt. The idea was if I could do three to five sessions a week in the evenings, uh, this was pre-kids, I could easily pay off the student loans within a couple of years, just working a handful of hours a week. Uh, and so it started that way. And then that practice kept growing and I kept having clinicians that wanted to join my practice. So I had to learn how do you add 1099s and how do you structure it differently beyond just yourself? Um, and then in 2012, uh, while still having that full-time job, 
uh, I started practice of the practice.com to just start publicly documenting what I was learning about business because for mental health clinicians, counselors, psychologists, we get zero business training in graduate school. And so it's interesting to see what percentage of us go into private practice with no knowledge of even what's a profit and loss statement. What's an LLC? What are the benefits of all these things that are really basic? And so I just started co-learning and sharing it publicly and podcasting about it. And at that time, I had just read the book, Guerrilla Marketing, uh, where he talked about, there was this whole example that I remember where for years, tires were all pretty much the same size. And then one company made one like a millimeter more and said longest lasting tires in the world or something like that. And then another tire company changed the tread and said best truck tires. So he was really talking about kind of finding the niche where you can stand out and be number one right away. And so I noticed that there were no podcasters uh, talking about the counseling business side. Uh, and so the only thing even close was the American Counseling Association, who had a podcast at the time that was dormant for nine months before I had launched. So on day one, I was the number one podcast for counselors in private practice. And you know now I'm the longest lasting, even if I am outranked. So uh, it's one of those things of kind of finding where I could stand out right away and just doubled down on that and started podcasting weekly and being able to then move from being a co-learner of just saying, hey, I read this book, here's how I'm applying it. And you know picking people's brains that were interviews to genuinely switching over to being a consultant, doing mastermind groups, having a membership community, all of that. But it all started with finding a space that I could stand out in uh, pretty quickly. It's funny. Is that I've looked back at your stuff and I've seen how you've evolved your reputation over time and how that started to change. I mean, you had a great TEDx talk that was about uh, slowing down and that you can see how these things start to like the words you use and the things you talk about start to weave their way into what is becoming now, you know, your new brand of Thursdays and Friday. By the way, guys, if you haven't had a chance and you guys are interested, you can just go to joesanak.com to find all of his information and access to the book. Or if that's too hard for you, you can go to thursdaysandnewfriday.com to get access to the book directly. I just had to put that out there. But seeing you develop this, like your brand evolves. And I think for a lot of people, they think when they start, they have to just stick with whatever it is that they started with. Uh, but you could see how you've developed over time and then have grown your reputation and pivoted into the things that just felt right for you. I want to kind of understand as you started to kind of grow your reputation in the space, how did you start to think about like what your identity was as a brand, or just maybe you didn't think about it, just your reputation and your identity overall, how did it start to develop for you? And how did you think about it? I think for me, it was really, as I started to host live events, like slow down school or killing it camp to hear what attracted people to my podcast uh, or to, to me. And, you know, I've been a skateboarder. I was in punk bands in college. I played guitar, um, snowboarded all, all through, you know, high school. And so that, I've never been the Friday night lights kind of football guy, despite how most people look at my physique. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, so I think really just owning that kind of punk rock style, that kind of alternative approach and not being the kind of main kind of trendy type of person, but to say, listen, I, I am attracted to the punk rockers. I'm attracted to the Rage Against the Machiners. I, I'm attracted to these things that, you know, a lot of it's become more kind of culturally centered, but at the time they were, they were outliers. And so to realize that those things that just come natural for me attracts a certain type of client that I really enjoy working with. I remember there was a lady I was working with and she was like a roller derby girl. She was super punk rock. She was a therapist. And she had this idea for, 
I don't know. It was like, I think Saga Talk, Michigan or somewhere in that area. She was going to have Saga Talk counseling. Like that was going to be the name of it. I'm like, that's, that's fine. That's good for SEO, I guess. Um, but it doesn't seem like it attracts your ideal client for, you know, that area and for who you are and you're artsy and that's an artsy community. And we started brainstorming and she ended up naming her practice Hellcat Counseling. And it's like, she attracts all these tattooed up, like cool people that are hundred percent her ideal client. And so for me to just own that and learn over time, you know, when you said this, Joe, I'm like, you are my person. That thing that I thought would actually turn people off because I didn't fit into the mainstream consultants of counseling was actually one of my biggest selling points. Well, and I think it's in the nuance. I mean, if you go and like, listen to what you were just saying, like, and people rewind a little bit, there's some actions that you took. There's actions that people are taking and they didn't sit in a boardroom and strategize like at the very beginning. Okay. What am I going to be in five years? What's my slogan going to be in my keywords and whatever else you took some action towards helping people and putting your perspective out there. And those themes started to present themselves and then you can mold them right after you know what the themes are, then molding them starts to come naturally. But I like to see how, because you could have easily have not written the book Thursdays New Friday, but still been on this idea of, hey, we need to slow down. And that could have been, all. You know, there's like 10 other brands that could have formed from that. And this is where you ended up. I'm curious, when you were building before Thursdays the New Friday, and you were building your reputation as a coach, that first couple of like things that you built that you weren't sure about, the programs, the courses, the groups, what was that experience like? And did it work right away? Was it a huge hit right off the bat? No, it was terrible. It was so terrible. Uh, yeah, I think one thing I learned early on was that you know, I was trying to sell before I had an audience. And the big thing I teach now is grow your specialty, grow your audience, then grow your income. Because uh, your audience will tell you what they want to buy. Um, so f- for example, you know, just right before this, I had people that did a bulk book buy of Thursday is the new Friday. And they're now in this uh, mastermind group. And we have 55 people that are in this mastermind group that meets every Thursday for six weeks. Um, and in today, people are saying, what's next after this? Like this, we're halfway through, we're at week three. Like, should we schedule a meetup in a year to see where we're all at? Like, we should ask Joe. So this is going on in the chat while I'm like presenting some things. And so I have this whole kind of model of how you talk through with your audience, like what products they want. And so I just publicly kind of said, so here's what I'm going to do, folks. Uh, I'm going to make a Calendly link. And I want to talk to at least 20 of you about that first question of the three Ps of, you know, what's the pain been for you launching and leveling up? Second, what's the product you wish that I would co-create with you? And third, what's the price that you would pay for that? And so I'm now publicly saying to them, here's what I'm going to do to try to level up with you. And let's do this together. I'll give you all the behind the scenes, but it took forever to learn that because early on, it was like, I'm trying to sell these products to, you know, I didn't have the audience really to buy them at the time. Um, but what, what I did do, my first thing that I think really kind of stuck was I started this thing called the one-year practice plan. So it was an email sequence that went through week by week launching of a counseling practice. And so the first person that paid for it, I wrote the, I had just written two emails and then they signed up for it. And I just stayed ahead of them for a year. So I would write like six emails and then know, okay, I'm good until this date. I put it in my calendar, like write the next six emails. And so it was a one-year plan, but I just had the basics sketched out. I hadn't written all the emails and it was $150 a year for this. And it just was on repeat. And so I was, it would sell maybe one a month. So it was good passive income. Once it was all written, it was completely passive. Um, but then this one Black Friday, I no, it was a Cyber Monday. Um, I decided I was going to email my list. 
And I was going to say, okay, this is usually 150 a year. It's going to be a one-time $17 fee. I had a hundred people that signed up for it in that one day. It was a $1,700 day. And since then I've kept it at $17 and we gross way more than $150 a month now off of that. And so even just the testing within it to say, for this to be worth it for me, if I sell you know, one a month you know, and do that for a year to write these emails, that's worth it. And then to keep adding from that. So now I've got people that they have the one-year practice plan. What, what do they want beyond that? Well, they want a membership community. So then we went through that, the three Ps kind of thing to get a membership community for people starting a practice. Well, then those people outgrow that. What do they want? Well, they want to start a group practice. So now we have a six-month program that is group practice launch. So allowing your audience to say, okay, I want to move faster. I'm willing to pay for it. I want a higher touch product. What's the thing that's up from here? Actually, I want to go a little slower and bootstrap it and do it my own way and save a little bit of money. What's the downsell from here? And at every phase of a counseling practice, we have a product from that $17 tripwire of the one-year practice plan all the way up to people that are ready to leave their counseling practice. They want to do a podcast and e-courses. It's an $18,000 program where we help them launch a podcast. And so there's things at every phase that they can say, I want to save money by doing it myself, or I want to speed things up and pay you to do it. So I want to dive into that. You mentioned something which I think is really interesting for a lot of people, which is you, it feels like kind of on a whim, decided on Cyber Monday to to drop and say, you know what, I'm going to see what happens with this $17 offer. Was that scary? And what were you thinking when that happened overall? And are you happy with what the result was? I was really frustrated at the time because I knew it was a good product that was worth 150 bucks. I'm like, I am teaching you how to launch a practice for the cost of like one session. If you get one client that comes once you've paid for this. And it just, I didn't understand why people weren't buying. So it's just almost out of frustration. Like, I don't know what to do anymore. You people I'm giving you all this content. I do the podcast. You won't even give me 150 bucks. And it was sort of a, well, screw it. I'm going to just try something crazy and we'll just see. And so it really came out of I wanted to have more people purchasing, even if it was much less, so that they went from, you know, people talk about going from zero to one, you know, they, they're not just getting free content anymore. They've given me something and it worked so well um, that I just decided to keep it. That- what was the value of that? So having, you know, giving people something that was way more worth than what they were paying for it, but suddenly having a hundred people or more interested and now in it with you? What was the value of that for your brand? Oh, it was completely for those people now went from just being, you know, semi-warm leads to being customers. And so those folks then after they were in realized, okay, this is much more difficult to launch a practice than I thought. I don't know that an email can just teach me this. Can I hire you for consulting? Um, This is difficult. Have you ever considered doing a mastermind group around this? Do you have anything else I could pay you for to speed this up? Uh, And so by people at least paying for something, especially something that valuable, it really showed them how complex it was uh, to do it on their own. And they're thinking, great, I get all this information, but I just don't want to do all this. I want to have somebody else help me. And so I think that then my pool of potential one-on-one clients at that time, because I didn't have all the other membership communities and masterminds, it was, okay, sure. You know, for a few hundred dollars a month, which is more than I'm making in counseling, you can do consulting with me. So now I had, you know, a very automated program and a very hands-on one-on-one. And then over time, it's just starting to kind of fill in those gaps between them so that that customer journey, there's always something that meets people at their price point. That's awesome. I mean, thank you for sharing that because I think there are so many people who either get advice or are worried about either giving something away at a lower price that would devalue their brand or 
just trying something different to bring attention and people into their business to where they're actually coaching at a higher volume than they're used to, you know, going from one to 20 or going from 30 to a hundred, like sometimes you have to take risks to take those jumps and you might have to try something on that doesn't, that maybe isn't what people are saying. Like you've got to figure out what works for you. And I, I think we need examples like this out there that people are like, yeah, this work and guess what next year, like you still did it again. You didn't have to, I'm sure you had more interest the following year. You did it again because you had other things set up that brought people along your, your journey of different products. Yeah. So I appreciate that story. Uh, what I do want to talk about too, is I think a lot of us, there's advice that comes from all, you know, we Google this, we watch this video, we listen to this podcast. Uh, did you ever seek out help from one-on-one -on -one coaching, those kinds of things from people, from actual people who are like, you know what, you're the person I'm going to follow and let, let's work through some different things. And how did you come up with like who you chose and what you wanted to work on? Yeah. So I did, I hired Jamie masters from eventual millionaire. So I had done slow. I was getting slow down school going the very first year I had sold one ticket actually to Jeremy Sharp, Dr. Jeremy Sharp. Um, he was one of my consulting clients had done this huge podcast series, a nine part series had Jay Papazan from the one thing had Lewis Howes had all these like big, Amazing. yeah, uh, like thinking, Oh my gosh, this thing's, and it's all in the lead up to like, come to slow down school, come to slow down school. People that I had dreamt of interviewing and then it launches and Jeremy's the only one that buys a ticket. And I'm just like, what the heck? <laughs> Come on. So I hired Jamie and she you know, asks me a really basic question. But I mean, that's what sometimes consultants do. They're just outside of it and can just ask you that pointed question. She said, so what have you tried? We walked through it all. And she said, the, the one ticket you sold, how did you sell that? You know, and I said, well, you know, he was a consulting client, but we jumped on a phone call. He had a bunch of questions. And then by the end of it, he said he wanted to come. And she said, then why don't you do more phone calls? <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> so I sent an email to my list and said, so here's why I'm excited about slow down school. Here's all the things we're doing. I've noticed that a lot of people are on the fence. I would love to jump on a no pressure call to just answer your questions about slow down school to see if it's a fit. And I think I did 25 phone calls. And I mean, this was a high ticket item. It was $3,900, you know, for the conference. It was meant to be smaller. Um, so of those 25, I sold 15 tickets in the first two weeks. That's amazing. Yeah. So more than paid for my consulting, but then you know, she helped me re really in thinking through, she said, well, do you want to sell tickets like this every year? I'm like, heck no. She said, well, why don't you start a mastermind group and then just include the price of the ticket within the mastermind group. And it's just included and whether or not they come, they get a ticket to, to slow down school. So did that the next year and then had 35 people that came to that slow down school. So to just be able to say, Hey, slow down school is included as part of this. Um, you know, we don't take that out of your, your mastermind group. Uh, you can gift the ticket if you want, but um, they have to also be a fit just really shifted the dynamic of people are already doing things. They're already paying me for consulting. They're already paying for masterminds. Let's just enhance that rather than start from scratch with selling tickets to a conference that a lot of people hadn't heard of. I don't know how many people I've heard of who have hired Jamie to change their business. Jamie Masters. Yeah. I, the name comes up a lot for the, the like the, the real like high worth coaches. Um, so I, that's amazing that, that that's how that worked out. I'm just trying, I'm wanting you to go back to that feeling like, you open the doors, you've got the one person by how many, how many days are you sitting in this emotion until you have this solution come? Are we talking just like, you're like, you know what, I'm calling Jamie tomorrow. Or is it like longer than that? No, it was a couple of weeks. Cause I mean, I was emailing people. I was like, what is going on? Like doors are open. Okay. I'll flood your email. Maybe you forgot. And 
then it starts to look a little bit desperate too, where you're like, uh, I don't want to come across that way to my audience, but I already put the deposit down and you know, paid for all these rooms and like it's, you know, it was right on the water. So it was a big gamble for me. But then I, I had known of Jamie. I knew um, of her through Pat Flynn and John Lee Dumas and um, some other people that I respected. And she just seemed like the, the best person. And, and it was the most I had ever paid for consulting in my life at that point. But I can easily track the, I think I probably paid $20,000 or so in consulting fees over the months we worked together. I can easily track over $200,000 directly back to that. If not then all the ancillary benefit and the traction I got and uh, a number of other things that are, it's a little hard to quantify. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I, I appreciate you sharing that with people. Cause I think a lot of us, we get stuck. We don't know where to go. Uh, we don't know who to talk to or how to find people and, or even have the confidence that, you know, if I found just the right person to help me, I can turn this around and make this work. Uh, Cause you could have just walked away and said, you know what, this was a failure. I'll work with this person one-on-one or something. And make it up to them and gave up on that idea, but you turned around and make it work. So I think people need to hear that more because there's so many people who I'm sure have run into that where they sold zero or one or two. And they, you know, they like, they walked away from that idea that if they tried it again or just twisted it, maybe it could have started something that would have been great for their business. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. We're coming towards the kind of the back end here of the, of the show. And I wanted to kind of wrap this up with a, with a pretty bow for everyone. So I want to ask a little bit about kind of in the personal branding space, if anyone's out there building like a coaching business, and I know I can ask you this because you've helped a lot of people who are, you know, giving advice and building businesses like that, their own practices. What are some of like the core lessons that people can implement right now that can help them just unlock, you know, their building their reputation as a coach? Yeah, I would say that there's the personal and there's the professional. Every single one of you as a person has unique things about you. Um, You like skateboarding, you like football, you like the bears, like whatever. Like you have things about you that just set you apart. And if you have two or three of those just unique things about yourself, it's just going to make you a more interesting person. And as a coach, whether that's a life coach or whether that's you're just kind of branding or marketing or whatever your coaching is, it's just going to attract the kind of people that are like, I'm into that too. That's awesome. Or, Hey, I'm not into that, but that's just cool that you aren't just a branding person. You're not just a uh, marketing person. You actually are interesting. Um, I think about this lady, Jessica Tapana, who started Simplified SEO Consultants. Um, she's a therapist, owned a group practice. She was at Slowdown School and she just geeks out on SEO, but she's a self-proclaimed technophobe. She's like, I have a smart TV and I have no clue how to even set it up, but she loves SEO. So she just sat on the couch every night helping these therapists with their SEO. And so because she's a person that hates technology, but loves SEO, who does she attract? People that hate technology, but want to rank higher in Google. Uh, And she's a therapist. So she attracts other therapists. So people like that skyrocket. She now makes more off of her SEO business than she does off of her group counseling practice. So I'd say starting that personal with just like, who are you as a person? And then on the professional side, there are so many self-proclaimed life coaches, business coaches, fill in the blank, that having some extra training and certifications uh, can really go a long way. So say you're a life coach, 
maybe get some breathwork training, get some different training in Reiki, get training in something that's external, just saying I'm a life coach or I'm a personal coach. Uh, have some sort of modality that gives you a little bit extra kind of oomph. Because when you have that, it builds your skills, but it also gives you just a lot more tools to work with. And I think for clients, they then see that even if maybe you're not licensed or you're not a counselor or psychologist, that you do have training in different areas and different modalities. Um, it's so worth it to find people you respect, go through their programs, you know, spend the six or eight weeks uh, to go through it, understand how they teach, understand how they sell, understand how they learn. Those are all things that then you can apply through your own lens and, and teach in a different way. I think that's amazing. I have this book on my shelf right here called Flip the Script by Oren Claff. And one of my favorite little nuggets in it is this chapter called The Plain Vanilla. And he talked about like that idea of brand differentiation being just one thing. Whereas, you know, instead of saying, I'm like you said, I'm a life coach and I have all these great skills as a life coach and here's how I learned and whatever else you say, hey, like you can hire any life coach. All of us will accomplish these things for you. I also happen to have learned breath work. And I incorporate that into my practice. I think it makes a huge difference in how fast you progress. That's what you get with me versus someone else. If you're into that, I'm your person. Like having that one thing where you say everything else is just plain vanilla. Here's the one cherry on top. Here's the one thing that makes me different might make them for you. I love that. That's a, that's a great example. And if you guys haven't heard of that book, that's a great book too. flip the script. But I think if you guys are looking for books to put on the shelf, like my friends here, Thursday is the new Friday hit shelves, October 5th, 2021. So it's been out and it's ready for you on Amazon in hardback in Kindle in, is it on audio too? You can listen to it. Yep. It's on audio. Um, it's in, you know, small bookstores, independent bookstores, big bookstores, like uh, Amazon, wherever you get your books. Yeah. This is a professionally published legit one of those books you need to find. I uh, appreciate you sharing that knowledge with us today, Joe. Uh, had a lot of fun. Awesome. This has been fun. Thanks so much. Yeah. And you guys get out there, support our friend, Joe. And if you guys found value in that, go and leave a little review too. leave a review, some stars, some comments. If you read the book, let Joe know that you appreciated it. That's all we got time for today, guys. Thank you for listening. And as always, keep on working on your personal brands and I will catch you guys next time. You've just taken your marketing knowledge to another level with this episode of Brands on Brands. But we have plenty more ways to help you build a brand that matters. Head over to BrandsOnBrands.com for resources, as well as access to our blogs, videos, and exclusive coaching sessions with your host. Be sure to visit BrandsOnBrands.com.